1: everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. Our guest this week, Michael Chang, 1989 French Open champion, Tennis Hall of Famer, coach of Kei Nishikori, all-around uh, good guy. Good conversation here with uh, a name everyone knows. Talk a little bit about the French Open, about Rafa Nadal, what it's like to coach a tennis player. Good conversation with uh, one of the good guys in tennis, Michael Chang. Let's bring him in.
0: Hey John, how's it going? Hey,
1: how are you? How you doing? I'm doing
0: pretty
1: good. I, I got a question for you. So, someone was saying to me the other day. They they said, "God, it's been such a weird year in tennis so far." And I'm am wondering what your year has been like. Um, you're 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 coaching a player who's who's had some injuries, but now he's back. What's What's 2018 been for Michael Chang?
0: Um, 2018's been uh incredibly busy. Um. You know, K didn't go down to uh, Australia. Um, we had, you know, we had hoped that he would be be ready to go down, but uh, but he wasn't ready physically. Um, so, you know, obviously we're doing some training, and then uh, and I've been pretty much going to literally almost every single tournament that he's been at. Um, we've had some extra kind of training going on. Just, you know, my for me it's been kind of like, you know, wanting him to, really get off to a good start. Uh, I felt like that was really important coming back from an injury. And um, so my schedule has just been nonstop, to be honest with you. Um, You know, I just got back from Barcelona not too long ago, and I was on the road. You know, I was in New York for – actually, Newport Beach uh, for Challenger. um, Dallas, which he won. Then was in New York. Um, I did go to Acapulco, but I went to – um Wells, Miami. We um, did a training block in the clay, and then went to Marce- uh, Monte Carlo, and then uh, and then part of Barcelona. So, oh man, good good thing
1: uh, good good thing you don't have a wife and kids. Um, you know what? look yeah. we'll, we'll talk about talk about you in a minute, but let, let's keep talking about that. You've uh, you you agreed to to coach K. I, I feel like this came when there was this burst of. Becker and Becker and Djokovic and I, I think Edberg Roger was right around that time, and I, I feel like your relationship with K may have gotten a, a little bit lost in this. But here, here you are, 2018, still going strong. I, I guess for, first off, did you see yourself as a coach? I mean, was this a unique opportunity, or was this something that you you had been eyeing for a while?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've always looked at it as a as a unique opportunity. Um, you know, I've I've told people before that you know, this coaching position, it was not a, a coaching position that I sought after. Um, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't, wasn't, you know, kind of uh, going around saying, hey, I'm looking to coach on tour, right. um, you know, under the circumstances with my, uh, you know, being married, having, having kids and uh, very young kids, um, to be honest with you, the travel is not really ideal for family life. No. And, um, you know, but I had this opportunity, you know, if had asked me to to think about the possibility of working with him, um, 2013, um, you know, he had a very poor summer poor us open. That's really when we, uh, started to have some conversation and he had been struggling. Um, you know, he was ranked between 15 and 17 over the past couple of years. And, you know, even though that's, that's a, that's a great result, um, for most people, I, I think he was, you know, really frustrated at not being able to crack the top 10. And, um, you know, looking for some, uh, some guidance and some, uh, you know, a little bit of a maybe a, a different point of view to, uh, to hopefully accomplish that. And, uh, you know, it was interesting when we started um, in the beginning of, uh, well, actually the, the off season in 2013 in December, um, you know, I looked at his schedule that was done for that year. And, you know, I studied Kay's game, um, watched a lot of videos, so I understood, um, you know, what I was looking at. And obviously, I played him in an exhibition, actually, a couple years prior. And uh, so I actually knew some of his tendencies already just from that exhibition match. And um, I looked at his schedule, and I said, "Um, you've got a tournament missing here. Um, And it was kind of like, well, what tournament's missing? I said, well, you're looking at the calendar year, but you don't have the H P final scheduled here. (laughs) Why is that? Right. You know, and it's like, well, you know, we've never made the H P final. Um, you know, it's just not normally put on our schedule. I said, well, if we go and we work hard, I think it's a, it's a very much a, you know, a possibility that we're going to be there in London playing. I think you need to put that in the calendar. Um, you know, and it just changed a lot of the mentalities. Um, you know, most of the times when he would go out and play, um, you know, his airline tickets were booked on Friday. Um, and I'm like, why are you booking on Friday? Are you like, planning to lose by Thursday to make the Friday flight? No, you need to book that flight for Monday because you need to go in there with the expectation and the mindset like, hey, I'm going to be playing in the finals and I'm going out trying to win every single tournament. So, you know, so we made a lot of adjustments in the mentality. We obviously made a lot of adjustments in his game and, um, and I felt like this was a great opportunity because I felt like so few Asian men have done well on the ATP tour. And, um, you know, I felt like Kay was talented enough. Um, You know, he was on the cusp of of breaking into the top 10. He did it actually quite quickly uh, in 2014. And um, I just felt like this was, you know, a great opportunity to make an impact in a, uh, in a very talented um, you know Asian uh, uh, male tennis player's life.
1: may is may is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month um, since you brought it up. you I, I just saw a video you're you're one of the honorees. we We will link this video uh, on, on this podcast you you talked about um it, you said you know, people said, oh, you're too small. Michael Chang is never gonna make it with that serve. and it was, it was unclear to me if that was a pretext. if that was just a comment and prognostication given your size or if there was something else going on there and then in the same video I don't know if you saw it because connie chung talks about sort of she was hazed and harassed i i'm kind of curious how, how do you assess your treatment in in tennis
0: you know it was kind of interesting because i didn't really get that much uh black until i started to do really well um you know i mean i i in the you know i did very well when i was you know, in the 12s, um, you know, 13, I played up in the 16s division. Uh, and then when I was, you know, 14, 15 years old, I was, you know, obviously playing in the 18s. And, and I didn't really get a whole lot of flack until I started to basically start to consider turning professional. And uh started turning professional, obviously I'm looking at it when I'm 15 years old, which was very much against the normal route on which tennis players would go i mean the normal route was to go to college you know maybe play one or two years maybe graduate and then turn professional so you know um but after i won kalamazoo after i did pretty well in in a few selected uh you know h tournaments um you know i started thinking about pro and then when i actually did it that's really when i got a lot of you know a lot of opposition um people that were in the tennis industry, very prominent people in the tennis industry. And, and then they're basically starting to, you know, pick apart my game and say, well, this is not good enough. But you're too small. Your second serve is this, you know, and you cannot expect to, to, um, to go out there and survive on the, on the ATP tour. Um, you know, with the game that you have, with the size that you are, um, this is going to be very bad for tennis because you're going to set an example for, future generations um who are going to go out there and think well i should turn pro early and and i'm going to do well you know in, in the circumstance right and um you know and, and i think in certain aspects uh um you know my mindset was well we've kind of gone through all of the different routes i mean this is not some you know decision that's made on a whim um you know this decision is made with a lot of You know, a lot of thought, a lot of wisdom. Um, Obviously, we're looking at a lot of the results. And it was a logical decision, Um, even though from a perspective of being on tour, at you know, turning pro at 15 maybe was maybe not the the norm, but everything else was actually logical.
1: Do you I mean, we should we should add, too. I mean, your 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 older brother, I mean, Carl was a college tennis player at the time. So you had you had uh, you had some data points here. Um, yeah, but but I mean, do you, do you think yeah. this was um, I w- do you think there's sort of ethnic bias here, or or are you not prepared to go? Was I mean, this hey, this guy's 15 years old, and I I don't know what you weighed at the time, but uh, I I suspect it was about one of Boris Becker's legs. Um, do, you, do you think this was just a, a function of where you were physically, or do you think there was something, some, something more profound going on here?
0: Well, I think it was definitely something that um you know, we had to overcome it in certain aspects because there were very few Asians playing tennis, period. Um, You know, the general mindset for a lot of Asian families was education, education, education. Um, And even though, you know, my parents stressed education, um, both my parents are very athletic. Uh, They love sports. My dad played a lot of basketball. My dad played a lot of tennis. My mom played a lot of tennis. Um, so for us to pick up the sport, um, was very natural for us, but, you know, when we'd go to tournaments, there were really, I mean, only a handful of Asian players and, um, you know, so, and it's kind of interesting now because even though there have been a lot of successful, you know, more successful Asian tennis players, particularly on the women's side, I still get a lot of questions from a lot of young Asian players. Uh, whether it's here in the U S or whether it's in Asia um, you know, in the Asian countries in the, the Asia Pacific rim. And they still have this mentality like, well, because we're Asian, we're not, we don't have the size. We don't have, you know, the stature, We don't have the power to, to play this sport of tennis or to, to play a lot of other sports and to compete with, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the other cultures out there. Um, and in my mind, I'm thinking, well, you're asking the wrong person here. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) You're asking the wrong person because, you know, I'm not any bigger than you are. I'm not any stronger than you are. Um, But the first thing first is that, you know, a lot of the confidence and belief in what you can and can't do, um, you know, starts with with that. Um, If you don't believe you're going to do something, um, it doesn't really matter how talented and how good you are. You're not going to do it, you know. So let's start by taking away that mentality because, you know, because if you look at me and, you know, and what I've accomplished as a person who, you know, is five, nine and, and uh, you know, 160 pounds. And actually when I won the French open, I was five, seven, and I was 135 pounds. Oh, man. Well, then don't tell me that, you know, because it's obviously not true. So, and I try to really kind of drill that into their heads because, a lot of them
1: have to get past that. I imagine it's it's very gratifying when you see uh you know not not just K and, and Young Chun but also look look at the junior rankings uh right now and you see I suspect far far more Asian surnames than you did uh 30 years ago.
0: Oh, definitely. Um and it's it's exciting to see. Um you know, and I and I think that um you know, it, it's great because they're they're now able to get out there and and play with confidence and and uh, it's always easier i think in anything you do when you've seen someone do it um it's always much easier to have a mindset like okay well if that person can do it then i can do it too i i'd, I'd go
1: farther with that though and say i, I always thought that was uh sort of an, an unwritten chapter in american tennis that you broke through people forget this i mean you you won a major before jim and before pete and before andre and i, I always wonder how many of those guys said wait a second Chang just won the French. If, if he's got it in him, I, I can get one of these majors. I, I always wondered uh, how much your breaking through in 1989 motivated uh, the, the other Americans.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, and I think they've, they've talked about it on, on different occasions. And, um, you know, I think that uh, I'm a hundred percent sure they were like, well, shoot, if Michael can do it, you know, there's no reason why I can't do it. And, and it's absolutely true. Um, you know, I think that uh, you know the confidence and knowing that you know they grew up playing with me and and obviously you know had beaten me before. Um, you know, and I, I think it really kind of jump started uh, the incredible generation of, of players that we had. Um, obviously, you know, Andre, you know, Pete and Jim went on to have unbelievable careers. And um, you know, and I'm I'm happy yeah, that uh, you to start.
1: Did, did you ever see the movie uh, Karate Kid? Yeah. So so Ralph Macchio, who uh plays Daniel LaRusa, was in here the other day. He's actually he's actually a huge tennis big big Djokovic fan, but uh he he was saying that it took a few years and he everywhere he'd go it was you know, crane kick this and sweep the leg and get him a body bag. And finally he just accepted it and said, You know what you know what? People love this movie. If this is what I'm known for, so be it. I I wondered if you had the same experience with with the '89 French Open, where at some point, I'm sure everywhere you go, people are asking you about underhanded serves. And um, if if there came a time where you said, you know what, if, if this is going to be my my signature moment, I, I'm okay with that. Did did you have that process?
0: Yeah, I mean, I you know, to be honest with you, I mean, I I kind of felt like if I had if I'd won another Grand Slam, um, you know, I got in the finals of three other Grand Slams. If I had won any one of those other ones, I mean, obviously it would have been a great accomplishment, but I don't know if anything would have ever topped the '89 French. Just, you know, in the the way in which it was won, being 17 years old, playing Lendl in the round of 16, playing Stefan Edberg in the finals, you know, situation in Tiananmen happening. um, I don't know if the drama would ever compare to that. Um, So, you know, I've always been, been content to, you know, people saying, you know, bringing up the French open in, in, in 89. I mean, I've, I've talked about it, you know, countless times to so many different people, whether it's been press people, whether it's been to players, whether it's been to to fans or friends or family. I mean, you know, and I think that for me, I feel like, you know, it was an incredible blessing in, in my life. And, uh, you know, the tournament itself taught me so many incredible lessons that I still, you know, apply to this day. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't think that, uh, you know, whenever you look at good things, um, you know, I don't think you should ever have a negative mentality toward them, even though if they get repeated tens of thousands of times.
1: I embrace it. I, you know, the story that you tell, though, that um, I, I think is so meaningful and I think is so illustrative of, of when we talk about thin margins. Um, t- tell everyone about what happened to you the summer of 96. You You know what I'm talking about? The, Summer of '96. The, the, uh, I'll, I'll tee you up with uh, Alex Correa, Pete Sampras.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. I mean the, the U.S. Open in um in uh, in in 1996 was um an exciting tournament. Um, there's no question. Um, you know I felt like uh you know I was very very close to uh to becoming number one in the world. And, um, you know, basically, if, if I had won the U.S. Open that year, I would have been number one. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was an interesting tournament. Um, you know, I was actually seated number two, um, and Pete was seated number one. And I remember watching Pete play, I believe it was his round of 16 match um, with Alex Karecha and they were in a very, very tough match. Um, Went five tough sets. Uh, and it got to the point where Pete was just fighting, um, you know, just getting sick on the court, fighting exhaustion, uh, to the point where he was just throwing up in the back of the court. Um, and I remember watching this match unfold and, and at one point in the fifth set actually had a match point. And I remember watching this, this, um, particular point and I'm thinking, boy, if, if Alex wins here, I'm. I'm pretty much going to be number 1. You're number 1 you know, in after the world. This And um um and Pete comes in, Alex hits a passing shot, Pete hits a kind of a volley that uh <clears throat> um that kind of sits around the service line, um you know, where on the deuce side. Alex comes running for the forehand. Um he's got all the time in the world to hit this pass, and I'm watching this and I'm thinking to myself, he's got it. He's got it. And he goes and he hits his forehand, and Pete has to guess one way or the other. The ball's a sitting duck. He has to guess one way or the other. He guesses cross court. He guesses right, and and he sticks his racket out, and, and somehow the ball dribbles over for a winner. And I remember watching it, and even though Pete's American, I, I remember watching him, and I was like, oh, man. <laughs> I can't believe he, he just flexed that volley for a winner. And, um, and Pete obviously goes on to win To win that match. And, um, and I remember thinking to myself, gosh, you know, I could have been number one just by that point alone. But I also knew that had I won the finals against Pete, I I also would have been number one. So, and it was a tough match. Pete played, Pete played Blair very well. I got, I kind of got off to a bad start, but, um, you know, it, it was just, uh, if there was one match that I could have back, um, it would be that finals um, in 1996 uh, in New York at the U S opening against Pete.
1: I did. There, there are so many of those moments though, where one, one Alex Coracea forehand and you become number one in the world. And this this moment passes and Pete wins the match. I think it was a you know, quarterfinal. He wins a semi. Then he plays you in the final. And I, I think tennis has so many of those moments that we don't really think about even, even as, even as fans, but have these really outsized impacts on, uh, on tennis on, on tennis history. I um you know, you you mentioned 59 165. And I don't I don't have it in front of me. I think that's exact same height and weight as as K as as Kanisha Um the the top 10 I think has never been collectively taller and yet from Diego Schwartzman to I mean K, K is another good example, it does seem like it is still possible for a player of your stature to to have some considerable success. I mean what what does it take today? for a guy 5'10", 160 that may make it different from when when you were playing 20 years ago?
0: I think that without question, um, I think what makes uh, a great champion, um, no matter what their size, I think when you're talking about trying to become one of the best in the world, um, but particularly for the smaller players, because maybe they don't have the huge serve to rely upon. Um, Maybe they don't have the huge power, but they have the quickness. Um, they have the speed to be able to get the balls, but I'll tell you what, if you look at the players who have been smaller, um, and the players who have done very well, um, as a smaller player, um, they've all had the legs. They've all had the ground game and, and they've all had for the most part, um, a tenacity, um, a fight, that, um, uh, a heart to go out there and to play and to, and to compete. Um, you know, it was certainly a, a huge part of my game. Um, you know, a huge part of, you know, Leighton Hewitt's game. Um, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, in K in many ways, um, you know, K is maybe, you know, maybe an inch and a half taller than me, um, but not a huge guy out there. Um, you know, I think you have to have those attributes, um, and you have to be willing to have the mentality like, okay, well, I'm going to be playing against bigger guys all the time. I mean, 95% of the time that it's actually play against someone smaller or the same size as me was actually, was actually more difficult because it was, it was a rarity. Um, so, you know, in many ways, um, you know, it was actually easier to play bigger guys, but, um, with smaller guys. You know, they had to have the tenacity. They had to have the fight. Um, there's no question.
1: You you didn't mind punching up. You're. I, I remember talking to Amber to your wife about um, Kay, and she she was just absolutely gushing about him. And I feel like, in part, because of the language barrier, and in part because I think he's just he, his commitments are are vast. He's maybe a guy that not everybody knows personally. What what is he like? I mean, how do how do you characterize him?
0: Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I think that um, you know, K is not um, not that easy of a person to get to know um, because he is more reserved. Um, he is a lot more quiet. Um, interestingly enough, when he is around his Japanese counterparts, um, whether they're you know other Japanese players or other Japanese coaches, um, he's very different. Um, you know, he's much more comfortable. He's laughing, he's joking. Um, but, you know, obviously his, his English is, is, is good enough. Um, he speaks very well. But, um, you know, I mean, for the most part, when we're on the court or when we're, you know, by ourselves, uh, I have to be the one to initiate conversation. I have to be the one to ask questions. Um, you know, it's not too often that, you know, Kay comes and, and asks a question on his own. Um, so when it comes to his tennis, you know, I have to probe a little bit. I have to ask him, Hey, okay. So how how are you feeling about your game? How are you feeling about the adjustment we just made? You know, how are you feeling about, you know, this particular strategic, uh, you know, uh, adjustment that we need to make for this match? Um, are there any things that you feel that we need to work on right now? Um, you know, I think under most circumstances, I probably wouldn't have to ask those questions. You know, most other players would kind of be like, hey, you know, I'd like to work on this. I'd like to improve this and, and you know, would be a little bit more vocal about it. Um, but with Kay, I have to be the one to take initiative. So um, so it's a little bit different in that aspect. But I have to say that, that to be honest with you, um, I think Amber probably has, I don't know what it is, but um, she has a way of communicating with him. Um, he feels a lot more comfortable talking to her, I think in many ways than, than me. Um, <laughs> and, life. uh, and, yeah. And, and my kids actually have a very good connection with him as well. Um, you know, even though Kay's not that talkative, um, my kids have no hesitation to go up to him and, and just, you know, give him a hug or jump on him or whatever. No hesitation at all. Um, so I'm, I, as I'm thinking about it, maybe, maybe this has to do with me. Maybe I'm the issue here. Um, <laughs> You know, but uh, you know, it's great that uh, that he gets along so well with my family. Um, because think, it goes uh, a long way.
1: No, and I I think you yeah, you say that jokingly. I I think you see that a fair amount that this player coach dynamic is is fraught, and a lot of times it's not the first time you hear this, where a, a player has a very close relationship with the coach's kids, um, and and the spouse too. For that, I I want to ask you about. Um, French Open obviously is upon us. There's one guy who is the overwhelming favorite. You are uh you're coaching one of the 127 players who are tasked with beating him, but re- realistically, what uh what what do we do about Nadal here? I mean, what uh I don't, I don't even know what you I don't even know what you tell a player if he's on the other side of the
0: net. Yeah, I mean, there's no question. I mean, um and actually it, I mean, hats off to Rafa because you got to remember, he's coming off of injury. <laughs> I mean, hey, he's
1: almost 32 you know, he's,
0: also, right? Yeah. I mean, it's incredible for him to, uh, and obviously, you know, I think when he jumps on the clay, there's no question, his confidence just goes up another two notches. Um, you know, I mean, you have the, you know, the greatest, you know, player to ever play on clay, um, you know, playing extremely well. It, it didn't really matter that he was coming off of, you know, an, an injury as serious as a hip injury. Um, you know, he's just steamrolling everybody right now. Um, you know, in my, in my mind and in my gut, um, uh, I believe, really believe that there's only a few players that, that, uh, that have the capability of, of beating him on clay. And, um, and to be honest with you, uh, one of them is Kay. Um, you know, Kay actually had a, got off to a good start actually against I was say, Monte he t- Carlo. He had
1: some looks them. in Monte Carlo.
0: Yeah, he was he was up a break already early on in the in the match, and um, you know unfortunately he had four tough three set matches um, you know to get through in order and to get to the final. And he just didn't have enough gas um, to play Rafa in the finals. But um, you know I really think in in my you know in my heart that uh, if I have a fresh Kane Ishikori um, and he you know executes. You know his his game plan to to a T. We can beat Rafa. Um, You know we got to remember that's the
1: five. Yeah.
0: So, you know, it's obviously not going to be easy. Um, It's never going to be easy to to beat Rafa, especially on clay. I mean, for him to have won eleven Monte Carlo's, (laughs) eleven Barcelona titles, he's going for his eleventh French Open. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, you would never ever in the world think that somebody could accomplish that. But, um, you
1: know, but he had. Yeah, so, so someone said to me, they said, they said, what, uh, who's, if, if you can't pick Nadal, who's going to win the French? And I, I said, it's like, it's like saying, if you can't pick a racket, what implement are you going to use to hit a tennis ball over a net? I mean, I just, I can't even, but um, I, I don't know how you feel also, but I, I feel like best of five is also his ace in the hole as well. But uh, no, I mean, who just, this, this is why we play the games. Um. Yeah. I mean, it's
0: very, very true. And uh, and I think you also have to take note of, you know, also how the rest of the clay court season goes. Because, um, you know, I mean, he's won Monte Carlo, he's won Barcelona. If he goes and he wins Madrid and Rome, um, I don't know. Is that going to take a little bit out of him? I'm not sure. Um, you know, there was one year in at the U.S. Open where, you know, Stefan Edberg won everything during the summer. Um, and then got to the U.S. Open and was just t- was yeah, just right, extremely right, tired. Right, right. Ended up losing to Alexander Volkov first round. Um, you know, I think that the year that he lost to Soderling, I think in 2009, right. I think he won everything. Um, but you know, I'm sure there are times, many years, that he won everything and he ended up winning the French. So, you know, we'll wait to see how things go. But um, you know, it's uh, obviously, I mean, Rafa's the heavy, heavy, heavy favorite going in. That's this year's trench.
1: The um, all right, but you are to 29-year anniversary for you, and uh, I I, I got to say, in, in almost five years, coaching a player is uh, is nothing to to sneeze at either. Um, this this was great. We're uh, you, you'll be you'll be headed over. Will you do? Uh, you'll you'll do Real Madrid, France, or you'll take a week or two? I'm, I'm actually
0: home. not going to go to Madrid, um, or Rome. Um, it's Good. just been too much for me. Good. So I will head on over, um, the week before, um, uh, the, the French starts. Um, but you know, granted, I mean, I'm, I'm the one that's, uh, you know, talking to Kay about all the strategy stuff. So even though I'm not there physically in, in Madrid and Rome, I mean, I'm watching his matches. I'm keeping up to date with Dante and, and, uh, how practice is going and, and, um, and obviously, you know, giving strategy and stuff like that. So, you know, we'll continue to stay on top of things, but, you know, Monte Carlo was a great start for him. Um, and, you know, if Kay's healthy, um, which I hope that, uh, he will be for this year's French, um, you know, I think he's, uh, he's going to be a dangerous player and, and, uh, and I know, you know, as good as Rafa is, um, I, you know, I Who think knows? Kay has the capability of, uh, of playing Rafa in a different style. Than, uh than than what he certainly you know likes to play
1: it's uh it's, it's Rafa versus the field but uh, no this is great so we'll uh we'll we'll see you in Paris but I, I appreciate okay. this this was fun and uh yeah, absolutely. Good, good luck to you in 29 years good for you <laughs> thanks John thanks Michael take care all right that does it for this week thanks to Michael Chang one of the good guys in the sport thanks to our producer as always Jamie lasanti and Jamie I will bring you in, and I will ask you a vexing question. What do we do about Rafa Nadal on clay? Is there any reason to even hold the 2018 French Open, or should we just skip the formalities and give him the trophy right now?
2: I don't think a lot of people would like that, but very well, we could do that. I, uh, who's going to challenge him?
1: That—that That is the great question. Um, I would say there's a guy named Roger Federer who won the previous major and is pretty good on clay, but he ain't playing In a different context, Novak Djokovic would be a name, obviously, someone who has beaten Nadal at the French Open, one of only two players, and yet it just doesn't look like uh, that's in the offing this year. Someone actually, while we were doing this podcast, someone sent me an email today um, about Nadal. Get a load of this. Nadal has won 55 clay court tournaments in his career and has 35 losses. So his tournament winning percentage is is 61%. That uh, That is silly. And I think, I can't can't think of an athlete. Jamie, join, jump in here. Um, I cannot think of an athlete who has dominated the way Nadal has on this surface. Um, I mean, it just, the the drama is in how he's going to win and what he's going to do, but not in the outcome of the match. We've said similar things about Federer on grass, but uh, boy, I mean, he's going to turn 32 years old in early June, and I'm not sure I've seen him playing at a higher level i mean so so far this year he's just been dynamite
2: with with the injury too which we weren't really sure was was going to keep him out so that kind of i guess goes to show you that his body is still capable of kind of recovering and and bouncing back from the kind of grueling grind grinding style that he plays uh i mean stan varinka last year was the one to sort of challenge him yeah, yeah. If, if you don't you have can, any
1: games he won when if they you fun? can call right. it that right. I mean
2: the the final I mean what, what what was it
1: I think he won five games yeah it was not many.
2: six games so you know you you look back and try to say all right well who can we go down the list and kind of cross off people you mentioned Djokovic would be surprising if he were to put up a challenge Andy Murray yeah, on, the Sa- iron,
1: on clay, yeah and he he yeah. doesn't come in at 100 i mean right. dominic I mean, team is probably a name to uh to highlight who's who's been in the semifinals the last two years but no i mean i i think honestly especially in best of five so it's right. not as though someone can get hot for uh for 45 minutes and, and take down nadal i mean this has to be a sustained effort on clay i think the best strategy is to just sit back Watch one of the great practitioners on this surface, the greatest practitioner on the surface, and that's that's where your enjoyment will come, not from suspense.
2: The one thing I do this uh, us talking about this sort of brings up the conversations. I feel like we had ahead of the U.S. Open when Serena was sort of like you know the huge favorite, right? It was like how could she lose? How could she not win this? And then all of a sudden, there we are in the semifinals.
1: You're talking about the. It yeah. gets Roberta Vinci. The, right. The twi- yeah, and so right. it was
2: like one of those things where it's like, who could beat her? And obviously, Roberta Vinci was never a part of that conversation. But it, I wonder, and now it's a little different because Rafa is so masterful on the clay surface, but I wonder if someone you know, like that, the pressure can kind of get to him. Um, You know, I think Serena did admit at that point that it was just there was the weight of the world on her shoulders. And you don't get the same feeling that Rafa feels that way here. I mean, this could just kind of like, oh, well, add another one to the, you know, to the trophy case kind of thing. Number
1: 11, I give you uh, three words and two hyphens. Best of five. That Roberta Vinci can take advantage of Serena's nerves and, and play a brilliant one hour of tennis and boom, our bid for the Grand Slam is over and Serena's out of the U.S. Open. There is such a big difference between that and best of five, where you just have that many more opportunities for things to regress to the mean. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think if, if Nadal's going to lose, it's going to be to some. you know, Diego Schwartzman's going to have right. the match of his life. I mean, John Isner came very close to beating Nadal uh, on clay. Boy, what was that, seven, eight years ago? Um, I think that's... Almost a, a more likely scenario than Zverev or a, t- a top five, Someone top ten player, through. Dimitrov playing the match of his life. I think it's right. much more likely to come uh, in a fluke. Anyway, um, good uh, good conversation with Michael Chang. Always a pleasure uh, catching up with him. We will have a new guest next week. Thanks, everyone, for uh, for listening, for the guest suggestions. Uh, Jamie, what should people do if they uh, like this podcast?
2: They should go on Apple Podcasts and iTunes and leave a nice review.
0: Perhaps subscribe. Click
2: those stars. Subscribe. So you can always know when we post a new podcast. Because sometimes we get a little off schedule or, you know, just have it pop oh, right into your- It's always very
1: helpful. You get those? Yeah, those like nice you know, notifications right. pop
2: right up in your, when you're looking at the weather and the stocks. It's and
1: there comes- right uh, up there. Joe Rogan, Alec Baldwin. Uh, There's a new daily available. Um, Anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll have another guest next week. Have a good week.